0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: This is Stories from the Pacific on ABC Radio Australia.
0: Hello, and welcome to Stories from the Pacific on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Bobby McCumber. Talilili Alpha Maeva is in the middle of filming an eight-part documentary series. He's tracing eight endangered or extinct instruments across the Moana. The project is an extension of Alpha's award winning podcast, Sounds of the Moana. Alpha is also a musician and former member of the Mount Veya Band, with four tracks featuring on the Sioni's Wedding soundtrack. He is now the Moana Pacific Musics Specialist at Sound Centre for New Zealand Music. Tau ili ili, talofa lava, and welcome.
1: Māori, māori, talofa lava. Ki koutou katoa. <laughs>
0: Critics. Oh I love it. Tell Ili Ili, uh, let's start with your dad because I've heard you speak of him very fondly. Uh, what makes you feel that way about him?
1: Well, my, my my father is, and look, everyone speaks who has a good relationship with their father would probably say the same, but he's a hero of mine, probably the um. Probably one of the only men that I look up to in my life, mainly because of the things that he has achieved uh, with the time that he currently walks the earth. Um, my father was Samoa's first indigenous pilot back in the 70s when that profession was only reserved for those who were part Samoan and part-European or Western or part And also, or mostly the expert community. So most of the profession that were reserved for indigenous peoples of Samoa were things like teachers, you know, a lot of the, what's very limited. And we're talking about Samoa post independence. So for my father to come out and and be a pilot and then had to go through the journey that he went through. So my father uh, was a, so his profession is actually an automotive engineer. But he got skipped by a lot of uh, scholarships that were supposed to take him to Germany for Volkswagen and all of that, uh, mainly because of nepotism that existed in Samoa class society of their time. Remember, post um, independence, we still had a lot of um, Afrikanese or half caste dominated industries, right? Where most of the natives, like myself, an indigenous person, were the labourers, um, as best as we could. So, uh, Papa then moved to Aotearoa and first of all became an automotive. Um, came to Aotearoa as an automotive engineer, and then went into aeronautics engineer, and in New Zealand at the time, went back to Samoa. Highest qualified person in the hangar, but wouldn't employ him because there was a balang he was, to my father's recollection, was the least qualified of them all. And to add more um, insult to the wound, he put my father in the septic tank division. Now, those of you who are young and don't understand what I'm just saying, back in those days in those old aircraft, when it lands, people had to physically remove the septic tank, take it to the back, and you had to dump it there. And then really attach it back into the plane. So my father didn't, you know, he thought he would have come back with a qualification, but because he was still an indigenous Samoa, that's where they put him. So dad said, all right, I'm going to prove you wrong. So he returned to Aotearoa and went back to flying school and then returned back to Samoa as a pilot, but they wouldn't take him. So my father then went across to American Samoa. And at that time, there was an air uh, airline service called SPIA, South Pacific International Airways. It was owned by a, sadly to say, it was a Papalangi couple. And they saw my father already had the hours to be a captain instead of a first officer. So on his first day, they hired him as a captain uh, because of the qualification he gained from Aotearoa. And then, uh, lo and behold, Samoa expected the uh, inaugural flight of this new airline and there was, as of would sing, the stone that the builder refused became the cornerstone. So that's why um, my father is a hero to me and most of Samoans in the industry of uh, aviation, Papa 73 still flying 50 years later, still one of the longest serving pilots, not just Samoa but the Pacific. So, uh just a small snippet of my father. That's why he's a hero to me.
0: Mm. What about your mom? How much did she also smash ceilings? Well, look, um, for every yin, there's a yang, right? So um
1: my father is someone that is um as what he does within the the Western world or profession. But mom is an accountant. Uh she's been a banker for a long time. And my mom is a village girl. Uh, that means that whenever father would fly, you know, most pilot wives would like to go with their husbands and experience the world. My mom decided to stay home and just, you know, let her husband do the thing of the traveling around. Um, but my mom comes from a, uh, um, a paramount family in Nofali, the village where she grew up, um, which is the Tanuwasa and the Taimalia family. She's the eldest of her families. And my parents actually were the funniest thing that happened in the 70s because starting from, well, 50s on earlier than that, a lot of Tangata Moana started to leave their home islands to go into the New Zealand and the Australia, the, the big weeks of society. And But my parents met in Aotearoa, and in the middle of the 70s, while everybody was leaving, they actually went back to Samoa and raised us. So it was a big call, cool, and that's because Mum is the eldest of her family and they needed to look after their parents. So my, my parents were quite funny, kind of pioneers, everything about it, because while everyone was willing, uh to be cold and work in the factory or get educated, these two came here, met. Uh, mom used to work for uh, B um, got his qualifications of flying, and decided to go home. So in that sense of a word, my mom is quite historical in the culture aspect in her own way. But my father's very quiet. My mom is... Well, yin and yang. <laughs> if father
0: is, <laughs> she's fire. <laughs> and with this yin and yang, what philosophies were you raised with?
1: Well, I was raised by a house of women. Um, in my house, my grandmother was the one of the first Tanawasa. So Tanawasa is the title of the village in Nufani that I was raised in. And these titles are mostly and mainly reserved for the men. And remember that some more different villages have different rules or protocols. So some villages, they title women and others don't. Uh, my village is one of the ones that do allow women to be titled, but my grandmother was the eldest. But when she was with the title, she wanted to give it to her brothers, honoring what we call in Samuel Fan, I know, the relationship between brother and sister. But she ended up getting the Tanuwasa title. But I grew up in the house where she was the one who wore the pants. I mean, my grandfather was just there as her sidekick. Paris Hilton, well, that was the handbag. Not that he mind, but that was the house that raised me, right? Um, uh, very strong women. I was raised that never back down on anything. Be polite, but be aggressive in a very nice manner. I think they call it in the papalangi world, passive aggressive. <laughs> we just call it smiling during daytime and efficient when the thing. Uh, is I just grew up in that house. And my father, being a pilot, I, I grew up a privileged life. But well, we grew up in a village life, you know. But um, we, I got to travel uh, as a since I was a baby. And my father used to bring home books. And so one of the first books that I remember was the picture books of the Trans-Siberian Railway. Still one of my bucket list. I'm going to write that track because it goes through, I think, four countries. And it has a multi-purpose depending on which part of the world it crosses in. And that was that's how my imagination of the world started was because of the house I was raised. In. Very in-depth in terms of the Far more entrepreneurial people. Um, and yeah, just normal as we call it, Forbes going about live trying to figure out how we exist in this new world that now includes uh globalization and the early form of westernization, if I would say. Mm.
0: In that house, how did your love for music start?
1: Well, as you know, someone who grew up in the islands, music is one of those things that you love it and then both shove it down in the same pipeline. <laughs> when it comes to uh, religiosity, right? So we go to church, whether you like it or not, you have to sing. Um, and then music has always been around. It's just not from one thing. Sound has been a part of us. And I grew up during a time when Christianization um, has already dug deep into society and in sound more. So everything was religious-based, uh, but even before that, we still have our cultural songs. So music was a big part of it. I mean, you hear it every day, uh, whether it's funerals or weddings. I don't know what people sing in divorces, but I think some families in Samoa sang <laughs> without telling anyone what it was for. Uh, whether we pray, eat, love, or get a hiding, you have to uh, cry in a tune or else they think that it's not hard enough. Um, but yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's a big thing. I mean, anything from the Moana, you know. Sounds, not uh, not so much music. I always say it's sound because I always say that music is a categorization of sound. And music is not our word. It was how they categorized when they heard it. They were like, oh, that's a happy music. Music was part of the categorization when the anthropologists, the ethnomusicologists, the historians um, came into our cultures and started to categorize the sounds into happy music, sad music, wedding music. Religious music is all of that. So when you were asking whether music and sounds has always been a part of my upbringing, I'd say sound has always been a part of that life. It's how we sail. It's how we navigate. And if you beat or when somebody gets titled, you'll hear their name announced, not in a sentence, but in a form of poetry and motion and in a sound.
0: Besides the voice, what instruments or sounds were you raised with? Um
1: the usual, you know, the, the piano, if you were at church, if you could afford a piano to start with, but mostly the mat or the fala. Um, and that was very limited in terms of the Simon instruments that I encountered when I grew up and also the cello. So in, um, in the, in the moana, and you'll find this everywhere at the moment, you get a, a bass and now we use a bucket and you put a string under the bucket with a big stick and you hold it and it's like a bass guitar. Um, and what I'm guessing from the research and what we've encountered, it must have been influenced by the standing base that would have come into our um our cultures by the Papalangis and by the visitors and those who came and said and brought these instruments with them. So that's those I mean and, and, and what I know now, but I didn't know then I used to call oh, I grew up with very Samoan instruments, you know, the guitar and yeah. <laughs> but they those were the ones that were presents. Hmm.
0: You moved to Aotearoa on a rugby scholarship at the age of 15. Why did you end up pursuing music over sport?
1: Uh, look, plain and simple, just in case everyone that's listening who played with me, I'm an awful rugby player, <laughs> but I needed to get out of it. right? <laughs> um, um, I, I was someone who grew up with an artistic head. My imagination totally out outpassed my village. And because of culture and because there's not much else you can do on the islands, I use rugby to get out of Sambo. And I vowed never to return because I want to, you know, everybody's seen Michael Jackson the TV that, you know, I remember um, somebody used to bring the tapes of, uh, was it the um, Young Talent Times? Mm. I think it was an Australian group back in the days, right? Yeah. Uh, to the Mickey Mouse Club that birthed, um the now freed. Uh, oops, I did it again, girl. But you know that's that's why I left Samoa using um, rugby, and when I got to New Zealand, no surprise, I was still lawful at rugby. So I started pursuing um, all the plays and 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 all of that stuff that the school had to offer, and yeah, started to live the thing that I couldn't do at home, other than singing a choir. <sighs>
0: You're listening to Stories from the Pacific on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Bobby McCumber, and I'm speaking with Teo Iliili Alpha Maeva, who is tracing endangered or extinct instruments across the Moana. Teo Iliili, one of the instruments you're tracking is the nose flute. What different uses did this have across the Moana?
1: Uh, to answer your question, you must wait for the documentary. <laughs> but until you now. <laughs> <laughs> what I can tell you now is look at that at some point because all we had to go by was what was written. Right? Sadly, most of the Tangata uh, uh knowledge holders that we currently have who studied or read a book by either Dr. Richard Moyles or Adrian Kepler or Hurst Fisher, all of these other um Baba profession professors and professionals. Is they recorded based on observation and also whatever the our peoples at the time explained with them. And so a lot of us actually um answered those questions, and the only thing that we know of is that whatever they wrote is what we think the instrument is. Because we stopped indigenizing the process of what it would have done. But in terms of the nose flu, what we found so far is that it had more than just uh The original purpose of the nose flute wasn't to be a sound-producing instrument. You know, for instance, uh, some cultures, they use it as a breathing um, apparatus to train those who are about to go diving. Because the same concept of, it's the same concept you need to dive. And most of our peoples in the Moana, we weren't swimmers. We were divers because we were purposeful. Yeah, you can swim if you want. But the only reason why we engage with the Moana is to feed. Right. we went not on holiday just having a swim in a suntan in between. The Moana we respect it. Remember that. We respect the sky, the earth, the wind, the ocean itself was our highway. So the the nose float has different names and it has different functions. In some cultures, it's a tool for the young lovers. In others, it's ceremonial. Others it's opening spaces, but we always produce the same five to six notes.
0: What does it feel like for you to play the nose flute? The same. It's it's quite a powerful in uh, in the fact
1: that I'm learning how to journey back into um, to to time. Because I know the sound that I produced was exactly heard by my ancestors, 200, 300, 400 years. It's, yeah, and and it's quite emotional for me because these were some of the instruments we were... I don't know whether it was purposely shunned from us, but when I came into my life in Samoa, we didn't talk about this stuff, the knowledge of them, their purpose, you know, who played them, were all gone. And if there was a question asked about them, it used to be, the answer usually said something along with, oh, it was before Samoa was saved. Right? So, <laughs> wow. so as I got older, I'm like, saved from who and what? Mm. But what I realize now is they used to call these instruments quite devilish. It represented the monotone sound of, remember, what we went through when colonization arrived, it came through the sphere of religiosity. And anything that didn't match the 4-4 four, four key of your carol system wasn't pleasing to the ear of, of those who brought the Gospels. So our instruments, the way we sang and all of that stuff, were considered minor and therefore had to be stopped. I mean, and I'm not making this stuff up. One of the greatest European tools that they did was record what they thought of us. Right? Probably thinking that we will never be smart enough to one day grow up to be able to understand what they wrote about us, but they did. There's a character by the name of Reverend William Woon. You can look this up online. He wrote, as you'll find in the podcast, that these songs are minor and that these Tongans don't know how to sing. But it's because, remember, how we sing in the Pacific, it's reflective of the only sound that we're used to, that is, the waves, the wind, and the trees. So when we mimic what we hear, it's in the sound of nature. When we hear the birds, that's why in some cultures we go halfway through the no, 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 it's it's reflective of a bird because our sound wasn't created for the entertainment purpose that the papalami of the Western world treat music. Our sound was a communicative process, but it's also to pay respect for the gods who float the birds. The trees who we talk to and would give us a tree to carve a waka or, or a canoe, right? So that's how we communicated with sounds. And you have to understand, just like any part of the world, wherever two cultures we with opposing beliefs come together, there are beautiful things that happen, like innovation and some marriages of great things. But then there's also cannibalization of the lighter by the bigger, depending on what go That's what happens to all sounds. And we were quite oblivious to it. Uh, you know, I can't speak for my ancestors, but as you know, as a time of we're very open. Our culture has never changed. It's always very hospitable. And that nature is more, it's beyond Christianity. It's its a nature thing. And so as we, you know, said hello to these new exes, we said, yeah, great. We don't have to stone two or down a tree that takes four weeks. We also said hello to other things like the piano or the guitar. Um, And sadly, what we do know in some cultures, it's either we did a swap by acceptance or we had to do the swap by convert. And in that conversion, you must then shed your old skin to make room for this new kingdom that's about to provide you with sweeter juice and berries Mm. that we're all allergic to.
0: Tell Ili Ili, you don't have to give it all away. But can, what can people expect from your upcoming documentary? What other instruments will be featured? Well, look,
1: in terms of the significance of this project, this will actually be the first time where you will get a glance into what are or what were or what once were the sound-producing instruments of the Mona. If you are a not who grew up and by choice, you were told to not speak and learn about your language because you grew up in Otero, Australia and America. Because you And you've gone through your identity journey and you realize, I want to start coming back to mind, but I've lost so much of the language. This documentary will hopefully help you make your way back into your culture. And we do know that a language might be hard to understand and speak, but sound will always bring you back to who you are. So that's one. And to someone who's curious, you know, where these islanders ever originate anything? Well, you're about to find out. So it's a duality in terms of what it offers those who love sounds and music. But most of all, um, to be honest, this is a love letter to my kids. I don't know if they're going to be 100 years. But if this is going to help them, because I know that in the future, there might be a more community in the moon. And we do know we can't take physical things, but we can only take our stories and ourselves. Hopefully, this will be one of the things that will always, um, we say in Samoa, uh, it means you can go swimming, but make sure you hold on to the oar of the waka so that you don't lose yourself. This, hopefully, will be that oar to make sure as my babies and the babies of the Moana grow up, build communities in Russia, Ukraine, or the moon, that there are things that they can hold on to that
0: are considered aesthetics of who they are. <sighs> Sounds incredible. Uh, what has fascinated you most about this work?
1: The fascination has come with regards to just a plethora of things that we thought we weren't capable of, that we are discovering has always been in our power. One of the greatest mysteries of our people that they took away is they took away the power of storytelling and swap it with the pen and paper. And we believed it. And we believed that only great Sumerians and the great Arcadians and the great builders of the ark were the only societies worth knowing. But what I've come to discover is that I am and you are the sons and daughters of the greatest navigators the world has ever seen. We didn't read and write because we didn't need to. We only read what was needed. That's the stars. We didn't need to write things down because we memorized it as part of our journey to make sure when you learn about your family, you don't read about it. It's ingrained into your mind, into all you want. So those are some of the discoveries that I've come to wondering. And I do hope that as I get to share these stories of people, that in some way it helps them with whatever they're going through. My fascination is around the power of our peoples, that this Moana is the mother. The house of San Moa, Tongue, Kidibus, we're just houses within one village. That is ever so true because that's how these instruments got together. While diplomacy might separate us, these sounds, it unites us all.
0: How do you feel knowing this knowledge was at risk of being lost?
1: There is a responsibility that comes with this. Um and so I,
0: I, I say this
1: a lot of time. The urgency that we're discovering. Around the reservation and the preservation of our our indigenous instruments, it's the same DNA that you're finding around climate change. We are all fighting to maintain something in threat of the one thing that used to connect us: the waters of the Moana was our highway. It is now threatening our way of life, and we are at this point of uh, time where. We're trying to preserve, conserve, and just reserve as much as we can before the water takes it away. So when it comes to the sounds, you have to understand these tools are made from the plants found in the islands. And the reason why the nose flute is different in Fiji and Tonga and Samoa, because those from bamboo, the bamboo strand is different in these islands. And as seawater starts to creep in to these lands, it's going to impact the truth. It's going to impact the fact that in, in the Cook Islands, the sounds of the the, the pate is different up in northern Cooks down to the southern because of the trees they use. These are the things that are impacted by climate change. So the same strand of worry is now faced by whatever's left over in terms of these instruments. Because as we fear that in the cases of Kiribati, in the cases of or now move once Rambi Island, for instance... Oh, now facing the same thing. took okay it loud. Near anyway, Well, near anyway, they're on a rock. It's going to be some time before we get up there. But the water is receding, and it's impacting the ground that grows these instruments. And when these trees no longer grow, we will now be able to not make these anymore. Therefore, really sitting on the extension basket for a very, very long time. And yes, someone said, well, you know, Tony, you can now three um three uh three d prints of fungal fungus' like yeah, just the same way I can three d print my hand, but it ain't the original is, it? but if we reserve the stories, hopefully even if they three d print me in a hundred years, at least it has the story to go with it, so that it 's not just the existence of the physical but the presence and support of the metaphysical hmm.
0: Finally, tell Ili Ili, when I saw you speak in 2023, I also saw your daughter play the nose flute. What was it like watching a child play an endangered instrument and give it life again?
1: One of the greatest pride of a father and a mother and a parent is to see the things that you dedicate your life to being shared by your kids. For my children... Um, they have no choice because they grow up around me and my house is full <laughs> of music. And so somebody is bound to pick something up. Um, but it was, it was great joy. It was the first time my baby daughter, uh, her name is Yamirin got to play in front of an audience other than just within our house. And, uh, if you are someone and you're listening and you're unfamiliar with the word fangu fangu, that's because we lost it back in 1800s. So my daughter, Is now the only Simon female that now plays the instrument that was taken away from us. So for me, having my daughter played, and not just played, but the girl loves the instrument to the point where she plays better than me. It's a joy for me because now I know part of the reason why I built these things, I have a child that's interested in it, giving me the kind of comfort feeling that there is someone that's going to continue doing this who well, hopefully would we'll pass it on to her babies and so forth and so forth. Um, And then, you know, we could continue this revival or the bringing back of the art. But in saying that, I want to acknowledge the Tongan man who taught Asamon to revive our fangu fangu. His name is Tuifonua Lava Kaibelata. He is the movement of Ikuleo Unu from the village of Kanakupolu um, in Tonga. And so, look, like I said, politics and the stories of us were written at time. Once the tongues had problems with each other, but I learned this from a Tongan man. It's because the narratives they wrote about us were not true. We've always been one people, and to find that out, we have the same instrument.
0: Tell Ili Ili Lava, thank you for restoring the knowledge of sound.
1: Well, look, I am not going to sit here and lie to you. These knowledges are not mine. Is because the people that I talk to gifted to me. And so therefore, I must acknowledge everyone that took the time to share the gift of their ancestors with me. And so therefore, it is only right for me to pass on something that was never mine to acquire and keep. But to acquire and share so that more and more of it echoes to our generation. And thank you very much, for Ite de lover and uh, appreciate the opportunity.
0: That was Tau Alpha Maeva, Moana Pacific Music Specialist at Sound Centre for New Zealand Music. You can listen to his podcast by searching for Sounds of the Moana. You've been listening to Stories from the Pacific. I'm Bobby McCumber. To catch more great stories about incredible people from the Pacific, just search for ABC Pacific. This story was produced on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people.